Good morning and welcome. Uh, My name is Ron Lutz. I used to be pastor here. My designation is now Pastor Emeritus, and I do a part-time ministry with Surge, pastoral care with our missionaries and our workers overseas. And again, it's a privilege and a joy to be here to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, So this spring, I was asked to preach twice this summer, and I was asked in the schedule, uh, the, the Sundays that worked for me ended up being Psalm 130, which was three weeks ago, Psalm 133, which is the text we're looking at today. And I was astounded with the way the schedule worked out for these two passages, because you'll know if you were here three weeks ago, Psalm 130 is a psalm that has meant so much to me and meant so much to Sue in the last few years, and especially a song based on that psalm was a song that we've listened to hundreds of times. So that was a very personal experience for me with that text. Then today, we're looking at Psalm 133, which celebrates unity among believers. And I have to tell you that there's probably been no bigger burden on my heart the last few years than a a burden about the need for unity in light of the lack of it in the American church, the American evangelical church. So I couldn't believe, okay, these are the two texts that I get, and it's really a privilege to share some thoughts with you about 133, Psalm 133, but also about the importance of unity in the body of Christ more broadly. So follow with me as we read this text. It's just three, three verses, uh, but it captures so much in this wonderful little psalm. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, when believers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. Very short, but very powerful. This is God's word. May he bless it to us. I doubt if I need to tell you, remind you of the fact that we live in a very polarized world right now in America in 2022, polarized in a way that I have not seen in my lifetime, and I've been around a few years. I've never seen anything like it. The level of division and strife and disagreement and anger and outrage and attacks and slander and, oh my goodness. And it's all around us in our culture, as you know, from all the various sources of media. But it's not just out there. As you know, all too often, it's in here, inside the church of Jesus Christ. We should be different, right? We should be a thermostat, not a thermometer. A thermometer that just reflects the temperature of the world. We should be different, and yet, so often, we, we mimic exactly what's happening outside of us. Let me illustrate this with the titles of four different articles that have been written in the last year in national newspapers and magazines, and our own denominational magazine. All written, these are all articles written by evangelical believers who love the church, 
Okay, first one. The evangelical church is breaking apart. A second one. Understanding the evangelical civil war. A third one. The people who are trying to save evangelicalism from itself. And lastly, how to respond to tribalism. Tribalism within the church. All written by people who love the church, but look at all these signals around us with great alarm and great concern. You probably heard some of these stats. In the last two years, when surveys have been taken, anywhere from 30 to 38 percent of American pastors say that recently they have seriously considered resigning as pastors because of the infighting, because of the nastiness, because of the anger, because of the strife, because of the pressure that's bringing into their families. And of course, it's not just pastors that are experiencing all these effects, but everybody in the church. You know, when we we are surrounded by division and strife and disagreement and, and all of the rest. I was talking with a friend from another church recently, and he was commenting about two of his adult children who were professing believers and were very involved in their churches until a couple of years ago. But they are dealing with such a level of discouragement and disillusionment and even cynicism that they've pulled away from their churches altogether because they're so saddened and confused by what they see going on around them. Uh, Therefore... (laughs) I propose to you that talking about the unity for the church that is God's will is urgently important for us. Now, before we get into the outline, let me just say this, and I hope you'll join me in affirming this. I am so thankful for this church, this congregation, so thankful for our leaders, so thankful for their wisdom and courage during these last few years, which, as we all know, have been very difficult, I praise the Lord for the measure of unity that the Lord has given this church. Praise him for it. It's not been without big challenges, and I know we've, we've suffered in some ways, but I am so thankful for our elders, for Anthony, for our pastors, for the staff, and for the wise leadership that we've had. And praise the Lord, we've done a lot better than many churches, as you probably have heard. But we can't take it for granted, and we need to keep praying for the Lord's work in our midst. So, as we look at this psalm, and this is more of a topical sermon, so we're going to be going beyond Psalm 133. I want to look at it under four headings. I'm trying to squeeze all this into the allotted time, though this is such a big topic that I've been thinking about for months. But here's what we're going to do under four points of what is biblical unity, that is God's will. Secondly, why is it so important to him? Thirdly, what are the enemies of that unity? And lastly, how can we preserve and promote it? Okay, so what is it? Why is it so important? What are the enemies? How can we preserve and promote it? So let's look for this first point. We're going to walk a little bit through Psalm 133. So in verse 1, we hear this exclamation of praise and joy. Behold how good and pleasant It is when brothers, all believers, brothers and sisters, dwell together, dwell in unity. He is saying, when we're living in a a state of unity with 
other brothers and sisters, our hearts are going to say, yes, this is the way it should be. Thank you, Lord, for the love, the mutual love, the mutual support, the understanding, the grace that you're giving us in these relationships. It's it's the opposite of bad and distressing. If you've ever been in a divided context, in a, in a church or a small group or whatever, and there's a lot of division and nastiness and strife, how do you feel? It's awful. You know, that's not good and pleasant. It's bad and distressing. But he says, this is the way it should be when we have it. It's a sign of God's presence. Let's rejoice in it and thank him for it. And And I tell you, I stand before you today as someone who's been been in churches in our circles for a long time, obviously many decades. And as I think back on the relationships that the Lord has given to me and gave to Sue and me for many decades with so many, so many significant friendships that go back even 50 years, basically, so many close um, and loving and concerned relationships where we've been able to be honest with each other, and support each other, and help each other through all stages of the journey of life, I just say, thank you, Lord. What a blessing. It is good. It is pleasant when he gives us those kinds of relationships. Now, let's look at the images that the psalmist uses uh, in this passage that might be a little hard to understand, but, but let's see if we can understand them. So in verse 2, he says, This unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Okay, you got it? You understand what unity is now? <laughs> That's not the easiest image to understand, let, let's admit. Uh, what, what word comes to your mind when you visualize that, that image of the oil running down all over Aaron? Isn't a word like messy? You know, so what's going on here? What's he trying to describe? So I was thinking of inviting Dave Hopping up and make him as an object lesson, pour oil and, and watch it go down on his beard and his shirt, but I know that would add too much time. But uh, what is the psalmist talking about? Well, this anointing of oil of the priests in the Old Testament was to signify the Lord's presence falling down, not only on him, but all the people of God in a wonderful, miraculous way, bringing people together. And it was a a sacred oil, you can read about it in Exodus, that was olive oil joined with spices, so it smelled great and it was wonderful. And it was meant to be a symbol of the Holy Spirit doing something beautiful and powerful among God's people, bringing people together and making them attractive to each other People who normally wouldn't even want to be around each other. That's what it is. That, that kind of beautiful unity. And then in a similar way, in verse 3, he says, it's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has, has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. To understand this, you need to understand a little geography of Israel. Mount Hermon, is 9,000 feet tall, and it's 120 miles from Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which is a small hill. Okay. So the dew from Hermon is going to fall on Zion, 120 miles away 
Can that even really happen in, in, in real life? Well, what I think what the psalmist is saying, that if it would, were to happen, it would be miraculous. And what he's saying is, this unity that we experience in the body of Christ is the Lord bringing together very different elements, in this case, the rural north, the urban south, bringing them together in a way that is remarkable and miraculous. Translated into our terms, it's the Lord bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and different backgrounds and different preferences and different political convictions and all the rest, bringing us together to form a miraculous unity that is beautiful, that is a demonstration of his power and love and his presence. Um, in you know, We know that that's why Jesus came, to break down the walls that separate people from, from others. We know that's what he was doing, even in his first 12 disciples. I was reading someone recently talking about tribalism in the church, and he said, you know what? Have you ever noticed that among the 12 disciples that Jesus called together, there was Matthew the tax collector, who had been working with the oppressive Romans to support their system, and then there was Simon the Zealot, who was part of a political movement to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And Jesus is bringing these, these guys together from very different backgrounds with very different convictions, and he's saying, we're going to learn to love each other and work together because what we have in common is the gospel. Someone said it would be like bringing two guys in a group of 12 where one is wearing a red Make America Great, Make America Great Again cap and another one is wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt in the same group. That's what Jesus was doing. And that's what he wants to do today in his church. Uh, in the very earliest days of the first New Life Church, uh, Sue and I, Sue and I were newlyweds and we were, we were part of that church. And it was mind-boggling, the diversity of people that the Lord brought together, who, apart from the gospel, gospel, never would have hung out together. We had Harvard graduates. We had hippies. We had drug addicts and former drug addicts. We had seminary students, quite a few, probably too many. We, we had very needy, very broken people. We had people with very serious mental illness problems. We had people coming out of drugs and out of motorcycle gangs. And then we had a number of Ugandan refugees from East Africa. It was like, and Sue and I looked at each other and said, this is crazy. All these people together in one small church, it doesn't make sense. And yet, what united us was Jesus. What we had in common was Jesus and the gospel. And it wasn't always easy to love each other and figure out how to do life together. But it was beautiful because the Lord was in our midst. And that's what this psalm is pushing us towards. That's what the whole stress of, of unity in the Bible is pushing us towards, that it's, God, it's on God's heart to bring together people from very different places to be united in him and in the gospel. Okay, so that leads us into the second heading of the outline, which is why is this unity so important, and especially why is it so important to the Lord. And here's two passages from the Gospel of John. 
where Jesus makes it clear how important it is to him. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, will, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, get that last part? Why is it important to him? So that others will know that we belong to him. And then in John 17, the high priestly prayer, right before Jesus died, he prays this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may know, that that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is our unity important to the Lord? Because it is his plan that through our love for each other and our unity together, Other people are going to believe the gospel. Other people are going to believe that the gospel is true, that Christianity is true, that Jesus was sent from heaven to redeem us. Francis Schaeffer wrote a lot about this many years ago, and he used to call this the final apologetic. This is our apologetic to the world that gives credibility to the message that when we see this kind of unity, it draws people to Jesus. So when I came to faith in Christ, I was in my second year of college, and I started meeting believers. And they were all passionate about their faith and wanted to share the gospel with me, and I was willing to talk with them. And the word got out, this guy is willing to talk <laughs> about the gospel, and everybody was sitting down and sharing the gospel with me. And it was, it was kind of fun, but I really stumbled over the message. There was so much about their message that I had a hard time believing that Jesus is the only way, that the whole Bible is true, you know, that, that science and the Bible could be harmonized. I had so many objections and questions. And this went on for many months, and I still considered myself an agnostic throughout all that. But you know what? I'm a living example of what Jesus is talking about here. Because for that six-month period, until I became a Christian, What kept me coming back was the quality of their relationships, the believers I met, the quality of their commitment, and the quality of their community with each other. That I I said, I don't, at first I was saying, I don't like the message. I really don't like the gospel. I don't like the gospel that they're preaching. I have a hard time believing it. But their lives are so different and so compelling, and they are so different than all the other people that I knew, the other friends that I had at school. It kept me coming back. I'm a living example of what Jesus is talking about here, and he says, that's what I want to do. I want to work through you so that my kingdom continues to expand and that more and more people come to believe and trust in me. And guess what? You know, this is how Jesus prayed that night before he died, John 17, these verses that we just looked at. But he's praying the same thing for us today. He is praying the same thing for us today. For his church at large, for New Life Dresher, 
for the evangelical church in America that is going through, has been going through, a civil war and is attacking itself, this is on his heart. This is how he prays for us. And brothers and sisters, if you're here as a believer, this is how we ought to pray as well. This is his desire. This is what he loves. And he says, I want you in the gospel to be united in love. I want you to love those believers in your life that really annoy you, <laughs> that are really hard to love, that get under your skin, that, that you know, cause you to go crazy. When you hear them talking certain ways, Jesus says, if you're united in me, I want you to be able to love each other and live together in unity and harmony because that's the way the world is going to be changed. Uh, many of you know the name John Newton. He had, was a former slave trader, then became a pastor. He wrote Amazing Grace. And he was also a, a marvelous letter writer, past, pastoral letters that he would write to people. And one, he wrote to a friend who was going through a theological contro controversy with a friend of his, and there were serious theological issues involved. But John Newton wrote to him and exhorted him along these lines, and he said this. This is so powerful. He wants, he wants this guy, a believer, to think ahead. He said, in a little while, you will meet in heaven. You will meet this brother in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth right now. I want you to anticipate that period and let that influence the way you relate to him now. In a very short time, you're going to meet in heaven and be closer to him then than your closest friend now. Let that reality come back into the present so that we see each other that way and realize, this is my brother, my sister. We may have differences on all sorts of levels, but we're going to be close and love each other in heaven. And the gospel should be able to break down the barriers that are separating us right now. The gospel is powerful to do that. Years ago, I had a wonderful opportunity to go into a prison in Northern Ireland, Belfast, Northern Ireland, in the midst of the troubles there when the Protestant Catholics were basically at war with each other. And with a pastor that I knew in Belfast, we visited a man who had been converted in prison. He was from the UDA, the Ulster Defense Association, which was the Protestant paramilitary organization that was fighting the IRA. And out on the streets in those days, People were being killed basically every day in the war that was going on. Well, this guy David had come to faith in Christ, and we got in to, to see him and hear his story and his testimony, and it was amazing, it was wonderful to hear how he had come to faith. But even more amazing was his story about what the Lord was doing in that prison among IRA and UDA guys who had been killing each other on the streets but came to know Jesus in prison, and David said, you wouldn't believe it. We are learning to love each other. We are learning to forgive each other. We are learning to read the Bible together and pray together because we see that we are now one and united in Jesus. It was breathtaking and wonderful. That's what Jesus came to do, to tear down walls, even those kinds of walls, 
between the IRA and the UDA, and that's what he wants to do in our day as well. Okay, so let's go to the third point, the enemies of unity. Maybe you've heard this poem before. It's a little funny one that I've heard for years. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) You know, okay, all this sounds great, and it's wonderful, and it's lofty, and yet when the rubber meets the road, it's not so easy. Or like uh, was in a comic strip many years ago, this great line, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Okay? So what's the enemy of unity? Ourselves, our own flesh, our own pride, our own arrogance, our own judgmental spirit, all the rest. You look, and it's there in the the very beginning in the New Testament church. Paul has to write to Corinth, and he says, what's going on, guys? You've broken up into these little groups, and some of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, or I follow Jesus, you know, the the real spiritual ones. They'd broken up into groups. Um, James had to write the church in James chapter 4 and say, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He was dealing with it as well. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In Galatians, Paul wrote the Galatian believers. Galatians 5, and he said, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. I mean, problems, divisions have been there from the very beginning. Biting, devouring, fights, quarrels, party spirit, all of the rest. But I would add to that, that I think one of the biggest enemies in our day right now is the influence of the world and the world's categories on the way we think and the way we relate to each other. Two of those articles that I referred to before uh, said that and said, we believe there's a huge discipleship problem in the American church right now. And that our churches often have our people for one or two hours a week And there's good scriptural gospel input then. But the rest of the week, it seems like our people are being discipled more by CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and Twitter and talk radio and all kinds of other sources of media that are kind of stoking the flames of division and strife and anger and fear and all the rest. And if you, you haven't heard... Uh, all the media outlets out there have figured out that outrage is profitable. You know that, don't you? They've figured that out. Outrage and anger and fear and prejudice is profitable. So with all the way the news is put together and the algorithms of it all, they're trying to stoke that. Brothers and sisters, if we don't understand that, and understand ways that we're being discipled more by those influences than by the word of God. We are sunk. And we need to say, Lord, help us to be discipled by you and by your word and to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, uh, And we can do that in lots of ways. Of course, it's not just Sunday worship, but being involved in each other's lives. Uh, in small groups and doing Bible study and, and all the rest. Yeah, the enemies are within us. The enemies are all around us. And yet, Jesus is praying for us, and his grace is greater than all of these enemies and all these obstacles.
Okay, let's go to the last point, the last section, which is, in light of this, how can we preserve and promote unity? I just want to share a couple quick thoughts under three Ps, prayer, uh, pray, preserve, and pursue. Uh, first of all, prayer, which is kind of obvious, but it needs to be stated anyway. Here's a great quote from Derek Kidner, commentator that I love. True unity, like all good gifts, is from above. It is bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. And if that's the case, then it's something we need to be praying for and longing for and yearning for and saying, Lord, give us the kind of unity that we know is your desire. And it's not just praying in general for it. It's remembering that's why Jesus died for this kind of unity. It's remembering that it's on his heart. And it, and it means praying for my own heart. Lord, are there things in my heart, prejudices, anger, bitterness, resentment, bad attitudes towards others that I need to repent of? Praying about those. Are there things within me that right now are obstacles to the kind of unity that you want your church to have? Deal with me. Also, in terms of prayer, I would say continue doing what I... I bet a lot of you have been doing. Please pray for our leaders. Pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for the leaders of the evangelical church in America in general. That we would have the kind of leadership rise up and lead us towards unity rather than towards division and strife. The Lord wants to do that. May we pray for it and long for it and yearn for it. The second P is preserve. Um, and just want to share a couple of verses from Ephesians 4 here. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And I love this because he's making it clear here in this passage that we don't create the unity, but we are called to maintain it. The unity is already there. It's given to us. We belong to the Lord and we belong to each other. But may we work to preserve it and protect it by uh, operating with the kind of humility and patience and gentleness that he talks about. Some of you may remember the workshop that Charlie Drew did here in uh, 2020, right before the pandemic started. Charlie's a friend of mine, a pastor from New York. And he did a workshop and then preached on Sunday. And the whole topic of the workshop was turning down the heat in our political discussions with each other as believers. And it was a great workshop. I thought he did a fabulous job. The only downside was that the pandemic hit right after it, and we didn't have time to kind of implement some of the things that he was recommending. But if you were here, you may remember that one of his exhortations to us was, was this. He said, I want you to think about a, a believer in your life that you know, someone in this church or another Christian friend, who you're pretty sure has some political convictions that are different than yours. Okay. I want you to seek out that person 
say, hey, let's have coffee or, or lunch together. And I want you to ask that person and be prepared to be a good, humble listener. This is not about having a debate. I want you to be a good, humble listener and say, you know, I sense that we're probably coming at some things differently politically. I'm just curious to know, as a Christian, how you've come to the conclusions that you've had. And I want to listen to be able to understand. And then if that person asks you to share some of your thoughts and why you believe what you do, that, that's good too. But don't insist on it and don't argue. I thought that was a brilliant idea and a brilliant assignment. Unfortunately, a month later, the world shut down and probably very few of us got to do it. But you could still do it now. I think that's promoting unity. That's preserving unity. But rather than assuming things about people who have different convictions than you do, ask them, listen to them, talk it out, and, and see if you can come to more of an understanding of each other, how different we could be. And a good example of a way, a way to do that is a series of videos that the Gospel Coalition has put together where they model discussion and debate among very gifted and committed believers about hot topics of the day. And on these videos, they have two people discussing the issue with each other and a moderator. And in a very respectful and humble and great tone, they dialogue with each other on topics like how should the church address racial injustice? How should Christians think about gun control? Should the pro-life cause encompass womb to tomb or focus on the womb? Is woke church a stepping stone to theological compromise? And there's a number of others. They are great, and they're a great example of how to have discussions among believers in areas where we see things a little differently. One last point, which is to pursue unity. And here I want to talk specifically about conflict and being willing to lean into conflict according to what what Jesus recommends. Some of you know that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us two things about the importance of reconciliation with others. In Matthew 5, he says, if you're in a worship service bringing your offering to the Lord and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, Remember what he says? Jesus says, leave the worship service right then, even in the middle, so you have permission to get up right now if you need to. <laughs> but he says, he says, reconciliation with your brother is so important. I'm encouraging you to, to leave that worship service and go and be reconciled with your brother, whatever the problem is. In Matthew 18, the flip side of it is he says, if your brother has sinned against you, so now you have something against him, if your brother has sinned against you, I want you to go and talk with him and seek to win your brother and be reconciled. So whether your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother, Jesus is saying, in my body, reconciliation and peacemaking is so important. There's an urgency about it. And I want to propose to you that I think real unity in the body of Christ in a church like ours is going to be the fruit of thousands and thousands of interactions like that, where we're willing to humble ourselves, 
and go to people and have hard conversations and not allow a wall to be built between us and them. I can't tell you how many of these kinds of conversations I've had over the years. And I had one quite recently where I realized there was... uh, It wasn't huge, but there was a misunderstanding between me and and a Christian brother. And each of us was hurt by the other, but because of some of the misunderstanding, we missed each other. And I could tell, okay, there's something wrong here that's that's not just going to go away. So I wrote an email to him. I expressed sorrow for the way some of what I had done had impacted him. And I expressed my desire to be united and reconciled to him. And then we set up a call and we talked with each other. We both owned some things. We both repented. We both expressed forgiveness towards each other and love for each other. And things are different. You know, if we hadn't taken that step, I know there would have been a wall, a barrier between me and that brother that would have remained. And it wasn't that hard to do, but it was so important. How do we cultivate unity? It's through those kinds of tangible conversations with others. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is praying for us right now. He's praying for your heart. If you're a believer, he's praying for my heart. He's praying that we will be part of the healing influence in his body to build the kind of unity that honors him and glorifies him. That's what he loves. That's what he longs for. And we ought to as well. In closing, let me just share a quote from Francis Schaeffer, who wrote some great things about this whole subject years ago. Love and the unity attest to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. May we wear that mark, as he calls it, the mark of the Christian, that that love and unity that will have an impact on others and lead them to faith like it did for me many years ago. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for your longing, for your desire for the church to experience this kind of unity that we've been talking about. And I pray that you'd be speaking to every one of us here, every believer here, that uh, we would really want to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. Lord, forgive us for ways that we get in the way and ways that we have contributed to misunderstanding and division and tension and strife. And I just pray that you would make every one of us uh, instruments of peace and blessing within your body. And we continue to thank you for what you've done in this church these last few years. And I do pray that your hand would remain upon our leaders and guide them as they help us navigate uh, these waters that we're going through these days. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. Thank you that you're praying for us. Thank you that you're with us. We pray in your name. Amen.